Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we continue our series on the Gospel of John. Enjoy. Okay, let's get started for our lesson this morning. We're continuing uh, working our way through John uh, 4. And as you might recall from last week, uh, we talked about that this uh, uh, incident that happened with John the Baptist where his disciples were starting to notice that Jesus's popularity was starting to increase and John's numbers were starting to decrease. So John's ratings are going down and Jesus's ratings are going up. And that was starting to create a little bit of uh, anxiety among John's disciples. So, so they went to John and they said, hey, we noticed this. And the comment that they made, I love this, they said that Jesus is baptizing and his disciples are baptizing and everybody's going to him, right? And you sort of get this feeling that it wasn't just simply that, that they were bothered by it, they were really bothered by it, almost as if the numbers of people that would have been coming to John would have been some indicator of John's value, of John's worth. And now that we have these people, everybody seems to be going over to Jesus, they almost felt diminished in some way. So they went to John and they said, hey, did you notice this? And we're really bothered by this. And then John refused to be pulled into that. And he basically said, you know, there isn't anything in life that you have that isn't already given to you as a gift from heaven. Now, that, what an amazing answer for that, because it would have been so easy for John to play into the sort of poor me, or the pity, or, oh, oh my, yes, you're right, my ministry is going downhill while somebody else's ministry is going uphill. It would have been so easy for John to go there. John didn't go there, did he? He reminded his disciples, as he would have reminded himself, that his ministry is a gift from God. That's how it started out. That's how it maintained itself. And that's how it would continue to the very end. And so then John said something very profound that I went ahead and inclu included it in the, as the beginning of our lesson for today. He said, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. What is it that you find gives you joy? What are the joy givers in your life? Who said that? <laughs> Grandkids, okay? Which are gifts from heaven. Do you remind yourself of that occasionally? Yes. All the time? Yeah, good. What else? Great grandkids. Oh, great grandkids. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Smiles that Triton brings. Have you noticed that he smiles and everybody else smiles with him? Have you noticed that? Yeah. What else? What else gives you joy? Music. Someone said music. Yeah. What robs your joy? Pardon? Pain. 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 Pain robs your joy. Okay, what else? 
What robs your joy? Fear? Fear. Worry? Okay. Now here's the question. Should it? Should it? Should all those things rob your joy? You know, it's kind of a guilt question. Anytime you ask somebody the word should, you start with the word should, that's an immediate guilt question. And then everybody gets quiet. It looks down. Yeah, okay. But when you think about it from that perspective, what is the difference between joy and happiness? Or is there a difference? Yeah, joy kind of is, you, you get the sense with even with the word joy that there's a kind of a deeper state of something. It's a, like a condition almost, right? Whereas happiness is more of an emotion that goes along with whatever's going on circumstantially in your life. So we could sort of argue that I, even though I sort of asked the question of what's the joy giver in your life and what's the joy robber in your life, which by now you should know was a trick question designed to lead you down the path and then I would like pull the trap door out from under you is that the difference between joy and happiness is that happiness really is kind of more about the happy things happening in life right an unhappiness is more about the unhappy things happening in life the interruptions for example how many of you uh, by the way experienced interruptions this week did you did you think of that as an impediment into your happiness, or did you think of that as a gift from God? <laughs> that is not a trick question. Now, this is a real question this time, okay? Yeah, I think it was on Monday morning. Victoria and I were doing our morning devotions. We're, we, uh, we, we read a guy by the name of Henry Nowen, wonderful, wonderful writer, uh, Christian writer, He's in heaven now. But, uh, but anyway, we enjoy, we enjoy reading Henry Nouwen. And so Henry, one of the little devotions that we read talked about, uh, about interruptions. That your interruption is really your work for the day. And that everything else is in between the work for the day. Now, how many of you think of it that way? How many, I, I, this was a little twist for me. Yeah, okay. Because this was a Monday morning. And, you know, when I come here to work on Monday morning, I always have my day sort of mapped out of how the work that I have planned for the day. And then Pastor Coleman comes in frequently into my office. <laughs> and I'm reminded of what the real work of the day is, right? But it's kind of an interesting perspective that if you look at, and some people do, if you look at interruptions as being something that's getting in the way of then already the attitude that you're going to have with it and maybe perhaps even the level of happiness that you're going to have with it will drop precipitously. But it's kind of asking that question, what would happen? Like, how would that like even affect your day? If you took the view that said, no, actually the interruptions are my work for the day. Now, if you have ever been involved or out on a visit with Triton, you will know exactly what we're talking about. Because when our handlers go out and our visitation partners go out with Triton, there is the plan for the day. There is the visit that we're making. There is the person that we needed to see. And then there's all the extra people that showed up. 
and sort of in a happenstance way, almost, although I think it's God doing it. That's the work of the day. A couple hands went up. Yeah. I am really relating to what you're talking about today and in a positive way because um, I used to go into work real early in the morning to get my day going before everyone else got And remind us what you did when you were working. I, I just about forgotten. It's been so long. I mean, working for pay. <laughs> now you're working for free, of yeah, course, but yeah. yeah but I, I was a high school principal. High school principal, okay. Yes. And I mean, even it's, I can say this and make a confessional so bad that sometimes I would even have little pieces of paper slipped under the door when I was going to the restroom. Yeah. So it's, so, it's something that I needed to do or something that somebody wanted or someone who wanted to see me. Sure. But to your point of having your schedule and what you wanted to get done and the interruptions, um, I had a lot of those too, and I found that when I dealt with things as they came, it saved me more time on the backside to get everything that I needed to get done, but it really was much, much better for everyone when we dealt with that interruption because you were meeting the needs of someone else and you were serving the people you were supposed to be there for, right. and as a result of that, you actually spent less time on it because you had then the extra time to do all the other things that, that you had originally to planned to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Carl. Yeah, but that's where the gift of discernment sets in. You have to be discerning when you have an interruption. As to, is it for the betterment of someone else or the overall picture? You know, or, or, is it, or is it just a disruption? Satan's throwing my face to get me away from God's way of so Carl, next time you come into my office and interrupt me, <laughs> I will discern and then I'll say, hey, Carl, good to see you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, so again, I, I, I'm wanting you to think about your perspective. See, it's perspective. It, to some degree, planned out days will happen. Interruptions will happen, all those kinds of things. But what if you take the perspective that says, this is not a disruption, although it could disrupt my carefully planned out methodical German Lutheran day, right? And depending on how anal I am about those things, right? But if I take the view that says, this is as much a gift from God as whatever it was I had planned for the day, and perhaps even more so, my attitude going into that with that person or with that whatever the thing is, my attitude will come across to that person in that moment as being, this is my work. You are not getting in the way of it. And in fact, maybe this is my joy and you are not getting in the way of it. <laughs> so I'm just suggesting that perspective going in can make a huge difference in terms of how it is for you during it and then what you think about after it, here and then here. I look at interruptions as God's reminder to me that he is in control. I'm not. Because I like to be in control and I have a list and I want to go down that list during the day. In the order that you and, made and the list? I want to be in control. Okay. And that's God's reminder that, uh-uh, you're not in control, I am. So this week, would you like for us to pray that God will bring humility to your life in some, <laughs> some miraculous way, you know, of, of being in control? And 
I guess not. Maybe not. We'll just let God do. <laughs> we'll, we'll let God do what he wants to do. And then if it turns out to be that way, we didn't pray for it. Okay. Just so you know. Okay. Yeah. Brenda. <laughs> I'm not sure that joy can be chosen or used. I think it's a gift that not everyone receives a lot of. Ah, interesting. So how would you get joy? I don't think you can choose to get it. I well, think you can choose to be happy. How do you receive it? And could you get in the way of it? Could you do that? You could, it, like any gift, it can be refused. It can be refused. Yeah. Yeah. Happiness and sadness a lot of times can be very, they're situational with things that you're experiencing at certain times. Happiness is situational. Yeah. yeah. And sadness too can be situational. I think when you get joy, it's, it's this kind of all-encompassing knowledge of your faith, yourself, <coughs> that kind of over, you know, mm -hmm. kind of overrides everything else. It's like a state of being, yeah. maybe is a way of saying it, right? Happiness, sadness, anger, situational, and don't hopefully last could you have joy and be depressed at the same time? Depends on what you're talking about when you talk about joy, right? Yeah, Scott. I think it's easier to have joy when we realize that our whole life is going to be interruption. I mean, our so when you when you think going back to John the Baptist, see how was he able to have joy? What does he say? My joy is complete. See how was he able to say that, given the fact that his you know that his whole purpose for being was to be in the second chair. It never was going to be in the first chair. He never was going to be the guy, right? He was going to be the guy leading to the guy. And then what's inherent in that is, is that eventually the guy that's coming is going to outshine the first guy. That's what's going to happen. And yet he was not, he didn't give in to the temptation of that. In fact, he says, my joy is complete. It suggests that there's something deeper. There's something more, uh, something more permanent, if you will, about joy. And from a biblical perspective, and, you know, we can talk about worldly joy and all kinds of things that people look at uh, uh, as being sources of joy. But from a biblical perspective, the joy part is found in knowing that you are God's beloved. I was saying, this John, didn't John know that Jesus was Christ? Yes. So that just, that right there, the whole perception of that, it explains it. The disciples didn't understand that. No. He did. Yes. So he knew that the plan was coming to, to fruition. Absolutely. So, of course, he was going to have peace and joy. And that was my interpretation of that. Yeah. Now, peace kind of maybe kind of came and went, depending on how we define it. But joy doesn't. That's why you can have joy and still struggle with depression. You can have joy and, st and struggle with, uh, you know, anxiety disorder. You can, you can have joy because even if you're not feeling it in the moment, it supersedes what you feel. You have joy because you have Jesus. 
And what you know because of Jesus is that you are God's beloved and nothing changes that. So whether, well, no matter what, John's numbers are going down. People might be saying about him, oh, he's a wash up. He's done. You know, we're done with him. Move over here to the next exciting thing, which is Jesus. Right? His joy is still complete because joy goes deeper. And it's resting on, it's based on that relationship with Jesus Christ. You're God's beloved. Nothing changes that. Yeah. Bob. Yeah, I was just going to say, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. And in John 15, which we get to in a couple of years. It'll be three years. <laughs> oh, Bob, you're tricky. But he's right. <laughs> My joy may be in you that your joy may be made complete. That's right. He talks about that. He's talking about the vine being yeah. attached to the vine. Absolutely. Yeah. So our joy comes from Christ. It does. Not from us. No. If it comes from me, there's always the element of doubt in there. And the element of doubt always is based on the idea that somehow I think I'm not doing it right if I don't feel that joy. I must be not praying right. I must not be reading the Bible right. I must not be doing it enough. Whatever it is, we end up sort of putting the focus back on ourselves. And that's why there is that difference between happy and, uh, and joy if we define it that way. Okay? Yeah, Gabriel. I uh, feel that joy and, and happiness are different in the sense that happiness and sadness are emotions mm -hmm. based on things that are happening to you and you emotionally react to uh, the happiness and sadness. Mm -hmm. And like he says about uh, joy being the fruit of the spirit, the fruits of the spirit, we don't see them in the flesh. But they're there in the spirit within us, like yeah. the Bible says. Yeah. And so you will have joy in you, even though your emotions in the flesh represent, you know, sadness yeah. or happiness. Oh, sure. The joy is, is continuous mm -hmm. because it's in the spirit. You yeah. have and the spirit's in you, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and so the, 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 in the flesh, you, you will have to renew your mind to stop bearing the fruits of the spirit. Yeah, excellent. Well, that's great. Joy, you, you start to live in mm -hmm. it and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Despite Christ being crucified, he's happy there. Yeah, know? exactly. He, the will of God is being fulfilled. Good stuff. Good gospel. Good gospel. Get your head. It seems to me that, you know, you look at the Old Testament prophets, right? They they spoke to God. God spoke to them. Yep. Their, their role was to present God's word to the people, mm -hmm. right? Now, John knew that his role was similar to a prophet, but mm -hmm. he was to lead the Christ. Imagine his joy now when he realizes that the, the thing he's been pointing to, pointing people to, is now here. Yeah. And, and so to me, regardless of you know, his role, mm -hmm. his, his joy was definitely complete. He got to see it. Yeah, and again, he, he, he's, his indication of that is that there is a when somebody says something is complete, you sort of get the idea that there's a kind of a process going on there. There's kind of a, a cycle, if you will. And it's almost as if to say, there's no more need for me to even think about joy because the joy is complete. Yeah. Okay, well, let's get to our actual lesson for this morning then, okay? <laughs> All right, so we get into verse uh, 31. So John now is continuing this conversation that he's having with his disciples. And to some degree, it's maybe a little bit more of a, uh, 
of a, uh, a lecture, if you will, than it is necessarily just a conversation. So he continues. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God sent, has sent, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe... There we go. little interruption there. I can walk and chew gum at the same time. Okay. Now, where am I? Uh, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Oof. Good gospel there, and all of a sudden ending with a little... A little twist of the law. Okay, a lot of he's are in there, so let's sort of uh, divvy out who the he's are, all right? So John says, he who comes from above is above all. Who's that? Jesus, all right? He who is of the earth, who's that? Us, and in this case, John. All right, he's talking about himself. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. So we get this, this contrast between the one from above and the, and the ones from the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Who's that? That's Jesus. Who was not receiving the testimony? We, the people weren't, but it was the testimony of Jesus, all right? He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. So, so this, this, this word, this word verbiage of receiving is talking about faith. Is that when we receive the words of God himself, we receive it, it's given as a gift, we receive it, and that's synonymous with having faith. So he says, whoever receives this testimony, that's people of faith, with me so far? He sets his seal to this. Now, we don't think much today about setting one's seal, but what was he talking about that would have made total sense in that day and age. Yeah, when the king wanted to, to uh, indicate that there was an official uh, proclamation from him, they would drip some wax on the thing, and then what would he do? He would take his signet ring. Today it would be the A&M ring, right? <laughs> and then they would put it down on there, and then that would be the signet of or the seal that this truly came from the king. And anybody who violated that seal was dead unless you were authorized to do that. Just out of curiosity, how many Aggies do we have with us this morning? Do we have one or two or six? I only see two. That's an amazing ratio that the ratio of two Aggies to 90 people in here. That's about a correct ratio, isn't it? Yes? Huh? Right. I just thought I would go there for a minute, all right? So whoever receives his testimony does what? When you, when you receive the testimony of the Word, when you receive it in faith, you trust it, you believe it. It's yours. Even if you don't totally understand it, you accept it in that sense, okay? Then what you are doing 
is you are putting your ring onto that wax and you are asserting what? That God is real. When we believe in Christ as our Savior, when we take that in, receive it is the word. We're asserting the truth of the scriptures, which is God is true. God is real. For he whom God sent utters the words of God. Now, who's that? He. He whom God sent could be John, but I think in this sense it's Jesus. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. And that goes back to what, uh, what Bob and also what uh, Gabriel were saying, that we have that gift of that Holy Spirit. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son, what? Has eternal life. Now notice something, present tense. Eternal life is what you have now. What? We're in heaven? Well, we are in Texas. <laughs> in August. Well, some people would not say that's heaven, but you have eternal life. It's not like, oh, it's only going to be in the future. Now, the difference is obviously we have it, but we're not there yet, right? And that's the reality that Christians live in. It's the already, but not yet. We already have it, but we're not, that yet, not yet there. Now, someday when we get to go to heaven, meet up with uh, Harold and my dad and other people that have gone before us, then we will be celebrating that. But even then, it's not going to be the complete whiz-bang deal that it will be after Judgment Day. So there's even a, a sense of kind of waiting for the big one. But we already have the big one now. And you see, that's what you hang on to. And that's what propels you through those ups and downs of life. Those losses and gains. Those moments when, you know, you've done everything you wanted to do. And you're not necessarily resigning yourself to, oh, I wish I would die tomorrow. It's not that. But there is a kind of peace about that, isn't it? When you, when you know your tickets are already stamped and paid for, and all you got to do is show up at the station, that it's all ready for you, right? And so that's what he's saying is whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It's just not fully realized because we're still living in a temporal life. But then he says something very striking. Whoever does not obey the son, and again, the word obey here has to do with the idea that I'm rejecting the thing that he offers to me in his word, shall not see life. But what? The wrath of God remains on him. Now, that word remains suggests, and I think communicates, that by nature we have the wrath of God on us. We, it comes natural to us. So when you think of the wrath of God, that phrase, what do you think of? What, is there an image that comes to your mind? The wrath of God, the wrath of God. If you had lived in the Old Testament days, what would you think of? The earth swallowing people up, you know, uh, volcanoes in Sodom and Gomorrah, kind of all those sort of uh, hellfire and brimstone sorts of ideas. And maybe some people who live in California notice that whenever there's an earthquake, you know, might be, it could be. Or in areas that are prone to 
earthly upheavals and that kind of thing. Could well be, right? But what else do you think of when you, or maybe have some sense of what the wrath of God is? He's turned his back on me. Pardon? He's turned his back on me. He's turned his back. As if that would ever happen, it wouldn't happen to a Christian, right? But, but the, the feeling associated with that would be one of hopelessness, maybe. Yeah, all alone, lost, no future in some sense. And I had no way to recover. No way to recover, yeah. I go back to Adam and Eve, the first, first sin. God left them with the guilt of sin. That is wrath. Yeah. It gives us over to our sinfulness. Yeah, it's kind of interesting in that story. We don't really know how long God left him in the bushes. You know, I mean, kind of when you read the story, it sort of seems kind of like that they sinned, they covered up with uh, fig leaves, they jumped in the bushes to hide from God, and you sort of get the sense that then immediately right after that, God comes looking in the garden and saying, you know, where are you? But I have always kind of thought to myself that, that maybe he left them there a little longer. What might have, if he did, what might have been the value of that, do you think? The weight of sin, the enormity of guilt, and that feeling of shame. What shame is associated with is hiding. So whenever there is the the impulse to hide something, then you know what's at work is shame. And so you sort of get that sense that there would have been some delay in that, not because God didn't know, or certainly because God was looking everywhere until he finally found them, right? But there was some sense of the enormity of the consequence of sin so that there would have been huge receptivity to the forgiveness of sin. Which, by the way, how do you know God forgave them? He kicked them out of the garden? Is that how we know God forgave them? Hmm? What? Yeah, Steve? They, they survived and they were allowed to have children and still carried on. So how we know God forgave them was that they didn't die. Well, that's one of them. But I mean, you know, they were able to be fruitful and, you know, this creation continued. He allowed the creation. Okay. That's one good aspect of that. Although God could have said, I don't really want to start over. You ever had that thought with somebody? You've been with them for so long. You just don't want to start over. Have you ever had that? You know? <laughs> have you? Have you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. Let's get real here. Of course you've had that thought. Yeah, yeah. You know, where you say, it took me this long to break that guy in. Do I really want to? You know? And no, I don't. So, you know, okay. All right. But there's a clue in the, in the scripture itself that tells us that he forgave them. Yeah. He clothed them. Ah. What? what did he do? Say that again louder. He sacrificed the animals. In order to do what? To clothe them. So there was a death. To clothe, yes. And the shedding of blood. So how do we know that's forgiven? Is because in the Hebrew, the root word for forgive is the same word as cover. That's how we know. And then because of that, Steve, they were able to go out out of the garden yet. Now they couldn't be in the garden anymore because they had to be away from the tree of life, couldn't live forever. But now they could go out, be fruitful, multiply. Now they can go out and do all the things that they did in the world, right? 
but they went out knowing they were still loved. Their joy was complete, even though they had totally messed up the history of the world from that point on. (laughs) Right? Right? And if you've ever felt like that, that whatever you did is unforgivable. And maybe somebody even said that to you. I just can't forgive you. And when they say it, they're just echoing what you already think. That whatever you did was so devastating, whatever you did was so bad, whatever you did was so, you know, totally against whatever the Bible said and you were raised the right way and you blew it. Your joy can still be complete because you go out from that forgiven. And when we're forgiven, that's the source of our joy. That's the state of being that you're in, that nothing you and I can do will change the fact that we're God's beloved. I think the bottom line here is, is that even people who, on whom rests or remains the wrath of God, even those people, God loves. And God wants to draw those people closer to him. And remove the wrath of God and instead give the blessing of God. But if that person isn't having it, I don't need it. That's for everybody else. Those really bad people. Not for me. Then what Jesus is saying or John is saying is that then the wrath remains. Not because God has it in for people and is looking for ways to gouge them. Why would God keep the wrath in place? What would be the blessing of that? Why does God keep the wrath in place? So that I what? Come to my senses and realize my need for him. And some of us, it takes extra effort on God's part for us to realize how much we need him. Not to name names. Or give a personal testimony. Okay. Next verse. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he, Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. Now there is kind of this little interesting little detail, isn't there? The perception was, was that Jesus and his disciples were going out and they were baptizing people. And not only was that the perception of John's disciples, but also the Pharisees are also running the numbers here. They're aware of the statistics. The metrics of ministry is what they're aware of, correct? And they're watching and they're observing and they're making probably some, some, having some thoughts about that. And so then what we're told is, is that Jesus heard that they were starting to make a deal about it. So he leaves town and he heads for and has to go through this place called uh, Samaria. But it says, and John says this, Jesus himself did not baptize. What do you make of that? 
I mean, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't really say, so I'm just kind of curious if what you think as to what Jesus' reasons might have been to not engage in doing the baptisms, but that his disciples would have done that. Any thoughts about that? Any wondering? Yeah, Philip? Maybe to reinforce what he commands his followers to do. Ooh. Go make disciples idea. Like to put it to, to put to have his disciples perform the practice. Yeah. And set an example for uh, other followers. I think that I kind of like that idea that he was already engaging them in the sort of training program of the three year discipleship training program that he had. Right. Yeah. Okay. We're going to do this and get you kind of used to this. And, and because after I'm gone, you're going to be doing a lot more of it, you know, so that idea, okay, that's a very, that's a real possibility. Yeah. Dan. The question would be, I want to be baptized by Jesus and his disciples, and that would cause a lot of conflict. Yes. Did you hear what he said? Yeah, okay. So um, can I sort of say what you said? And then if I don't say what you said, you can tell me what you said and I'll <laughs> say what you said. What he's saying is, is that it could possibly have set up a sort of hierarchy of who got baptized by Jesus versus who got baptized by Jesus' disciples, and Jesus wasn't about to get into that. Yeah, and in fact, that, sh that happened later in the, uh, in the early church as some people said, well, I got baptized by Paul, and other people said, I got baptized by Apollos. And so they began to set up this sort of hierarchy of who got the best baptism deal versus who got the worst baptism deal. And that definitely would have happened, I think, with, with Jesus. Yeah. So two really good theories here. And again, the Bible doesn't say, but, but we sort of get that sense that there was something more to it than just, uh, just that. Yeah. One other thought. If uh, Jesus said, I baptize you in my name, as opposed to, you know, they're saying baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Yeah. That uh, there's kind of an ego thing there that's might all, uh, all put. Ego in the church? <laughs> <laughs> Among ministers? Among oh, my gosh. Heavens. Well, that would never happen in our world, would it? Yeah. All right. All right. So anyway, there might, there might have been some reasons there. All right. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the comment that John makes that he said, the gospel writers makes, that John. He says he had to pass through Samaria. You almost get the feeling that it was like, oh, do we have to go there? Not that Jesus would have thought that. But uh, uh, in that day and age, the lack of love that existed between Samaritans and Jews was well known. And so in writing about this, you sort of get this sense that, that John was, was articulating the fact that this was part of Jesus' intentional ministry to reach out to, to people that were considered second class. So to talk a little bit about the difference between the two. So the conflicts between the Samaritans and the Jews were well known. They each avoided contact with the other. They each viewed themselves as true worshipers of Yahweh, of God. And they viewed the other as second class. And here's what they based that on. Was that when the Jews were taken captive and then exiled in Babylon. So we remember the, the Babylonians uh, uh, with Nebuchadnezzar. He came in, he swept in, he destroyed everything, knocked the temple down. There's nothing left. What did he do with some of the learned people, the, the, the PhDs, where did they end up going? 
back to Babylon. So there was a good, there was a method to the madness there as far as, as far as uh, uh, the Babylonians were concerned. All right. Well, who was left behind? The Samaritans, the people that would have been at that time considered Samaritans. All right. So they they remind, they remain behind in the ruins. So later then when the Jews returned to rebuild the temple and the city walls, the Samaritans were rejected as not true Jews because they had intermarried with the locals that the Babylonians that remained there, as well as the Assyrians and all the the peoples that, that lived in that area who were all pagan worshipers. So what the Samaritans, the forerunners of the Samaritans did was they intermarried with those folks. That's who was there. And then they incorporated the pagan gods into their own worship of Yahweh. So there was a definite watering down, if you will, of the religion. And it wasn't a watering down in the sense of, oh, we've changed denominations. It was we have brought idol worship into the house of God, so to speak. So there was some sense of, you know, are you really still a true Jew? Because you're also worshiping the Baal gods as well. Well, the Samaritans, though, they rejected the Jews who had been carried off into exile and then returned. They rejected the Jews also as not true Jews because the Jews that were carried off to Babylon and then eventually Babylon was overrun by the Persians. They had adapted to the Persian culture. They were dressing like Persians and their hair was cut like Persians and they were eating food like Persians. And perhaps there was the thought that maybe even they are worshiping like the Persians. So fast forward into Jesus's day for a Jew or Samaritan to speak to each other was even asking for major trouble. There was a, a level of despising of the other. And each of them based that on the idea that he himself or herself was a true Jew and everybody else was second class. The exception to the rule was in doing business. (laughs) So commerce and the stock market and whatever else was going on in terms of how uh, people made a living That was the exception to the rule. So the rule of thumb was as long as we don't go to church together, we can still buy stuff from each other. That was the idea. All right. So Jacob's well is there. Jesus is going through this town. Samaria was very well known where the line of Samaria was. He stops off at this this town and there was Jacob's well. And, And so that takes us back to the Old Testament, doesn't it? The story of Jacob and fighting off the, uh, the marauders and he, he establishes this well. And basically the idea of the well was it was a hewn shaft that was uh, down into the rock and then there were springs that came out. Okay, that was the idea. So see what happens. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus is now breaking every single rule that existed in the culture of how people deal with each other. 
and how people keep the line straight of who associates with whom, who talks to whom, and who uh, makes requests of whom. What's the rules Jesus is breaking? Jew talking to Samaritan and man talking to a woman not married and, as we learn later, of questionable reputation and maybe not even questionable. We go back to the, what we talked about before with regards to the differences, right, and the antagonism that went on between Jew and, uh, and Samaritan. So here's some questions for us to kind of wrestle over a little bit before we move further into the story. How might Jesus' willingness to engage with this despised woman affect our own willingness to confront our own bias and prejudice? Hot topic today. In the news, almost everywhere that you um, look, there's an undercurrent of that questioning, bias, prejudice, racial, societal, cultural. What does the story of what Jesus is doing so far? Now, again, there's more of the story than just, oh, he's talking to a woman who happens to be a Samaritan who also happens to have a lifestyle that's lousy. Okay. We kind of know where that story is going. But what is his willingness to engage with her in a way that would have been in his culture and his society totally forbidden? How does that affect us? How does that inform us? Or does it? His love. His love for all people. How did she know he was a Jew? He would have been dressing like a Jew. So they would have worn, you know, um, probably we ought to have some time of visual up here of how he would have known that, how they would have known that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like um, we wouldn't notice that so much in our culture because people don't necessarily dress according to a culture except maybe uh, women from the Middle East. See, somebody from the Middle East that, who's a strict, you know, um, adherent to Islam, we probably could say that dress is different. Okay? So maybe that's a way to think about that. Is there anything troubling here about this question? I hope so. I hope it, I hope it, I hope it tickles that a little bit. I hope it sort of agitates that a little bit. So that we can kind of engage in that conversation or at least be willing to look at it from the perspective of that probably every single one of us, including the guy that's up here talking to you, has bias and prejudice. And it's kind of uncomfortable to have somebody point that out. Much less look in the mirror and point it out. Yeah, Philip? Well, something just hit me. Breaking, like, with Jesus talking to this woman, like, he's also breaking down the social stigma or whatever of, you know, like, say someone saw him talking to her, you know, like the public person. Yes, yes. Uh, and, you know, like... The, this Jew is associating himself with this Samaritan. Like, what would other people talk about and think about? That's correct. It, 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 it strikes me, if you think of it in connection to 
Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that, you know, why was that parable so profound? It's because the people that in the story, the people that you would have expected had every expectation that would help this guy who's half dead laying on the road, you know, naked with nothing. You, you would expect that. But the very guy that was the unexpected guy that helped the, guy, helped the, the, the person who's half dead is a Samaritan. That would have been, oh, that, there was no way. The, the, the listener would have listened to that and said, absolutely no way would that ever happen. And yet, that's the thrust of Jesus' parable. That he causes us to look at ourselves and say, maybe there's a tiny little room for improvement in, in what our comfort zones are and, and what we base our comfort zones on, which again might be some intentional bias on our part, some intentional prejudice, or it could simply be prejudice that we've all grown up with for so long that we didn't even know it was even there. That's kind of what people call unconscious bias or unconscious uh, prejudice. Yeah. So again, the fact that the whole group now is very quiet is good because we're giving thought to maybe some things we hadn't thought about before. And if this disturbs you, then it's achieving its purpose. Okay? Yeah, one more and then we'll move on. The point that is uh, in there that it said that uh, he was weary from his journey. Yeah. As God, he would not be weary, but as a man, yeah. he was worried. And so he set an example for other humans. Yeah. That, yeah. In his interactions. That and sometimes when there's a need, you don't care about all that extra stuff, do you? You just know you're thirsty, right? Or you know you're hungry. And note, but there's a couple things worth noting here, okay? Note that Jesus did not seek to confront the society or change the culture that he was with. He did not come to engage in social engineering as if to be a reformer of the ills of society. That, wasn't, that isn't what Jesus came to do. But he was not shy to confront individuals and their religious groups which had lost their gospel-based spiritual core. See, to some degree... When I look at Jesus and what he's doing, he's purely motivated by what? Love. That's what he's motivated by. And so sometimes we forget that. We, we forget that, that, well, he came to do this and he came to do that. Well, yeah, he came to save the world from itself. And what motivated him to do that was that he, as John 3.16 says, God so Love the world that he gave his only son. And that meant that his only son would then be the expression, the living expression of that love, meaning he would go to people who in that day were considered unlovable. And that's how it was. But by his engaging with her, and we're going to talk about what constituted that engagement, because there's more to it than just he went to her. Obviously, there's a conversation that takes place. And there are going to be aspects of that conversation that people are not comfortable with. Good. Right? Good. But the idea is, is that he is the living expression of what the love of God is. Because when you look at it in the big picture, who of us deserves the love that he offers? None of us. None of us. 
And yet, what does God do? He so loves the world. He so loves us that he sends Jesus to be your Savior and to be mine. We are the Samaritans. And Jesus does what? He says, I don't care about that stuff. I want you, and I want you, and I want you. Okay? So, she was surprised that he wanted to drink. And that he asked her. Maybe he's not surprised that she, you know, he was thirsty. Okay, he wants a drink. But she's a bit surprised that he's a Jew and he's asking her. So then Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, I, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, whoever or everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Okay. Notice what Jesus does. Is he takes the earthly conversation about water, which made perfect sense because he's thirsty and he says, give me something to drink, right? And then what he does is he turns it on a dime, and now all of a sudden we're not talking about just plain old water that everybody can drink, right, in a, in a temporal or earthly way. Now we're talking about spiritual stuff. Jesus was so good at this. And this is the way that he disarms her from thinking about only the reference being, here, you are a guy talking to me. Here, you are a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan. He moves it out of the realm of cultural bias and, and, and prejudice and all that stuff that went with it. And now he's moving it into the real spiritual conversation he wants to have with her. It's interesting that the little twist or part of the twist is that he is saying to her, if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for water. The little twist. Now, initially, she doesn't get it, does she? And we think, well, I don't know. Maybe she didn't go to college. <laughs> maybe, you know, she had a kind of rudimentary uh, education. But who else have we already seen in John who also didn't get it initially? Remember Nicodemus? Member of the Sanhedrin? PhD in theology. Jesus is talking to him about being born again. And what does he say? Well, how can you go into your mother's womb again and be born? See, it, the education level of people doesn't matter in terms of Jesus's willingness to engage with that person. And no matter where that person is, Jesus is going to take you to a new level. He's going to twist your mind because that's part of how he helps us grow. So we're going to stop here because I have to go to work in the second service. But I want you to be thinking about thirst. Okay?
thirst. And, and the contrast of thirst that Jesus is articulating here in terms of water from the well or water that comes from a spring. Water that you will drink and be thirsty again versus water that's living water. Water that we take of and partake of versus the water that Jesus gives. And to be thinking about those questions, um, what do people today thirst for? What and what do you thirst for? And then what have you discover actually quenches your thirst? And even as I'm talking about this, I'm starting to have mouth watering is <laughs> thinking, oh my gosh, I really am thirsty. Okay. All right. So let's, uh, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the way that your word speaks to us. Sometimes it's very clear. Sometimes it makes perfect sense. And then sometimes we feel like Nicodemus or we feel like the woman at the well where you're talking about greater things and we're kind of going, what? Stay with us, Lord. Move us. Grow us and grow in us so that we can kind of come to terms with your word in a, in a stronger, more powerful and deeply applicable way as it forces us to look at ourselves, to look at where our comfort is, to look at where our bias is, to look where our prejudices are to be willing to trade those in for what you offer to us in the love that you have for us and then the grace that we need, the power that we need to love one another. Watch over us this week, dear Lord. Be also with Pastor Coleman as he and Angie are are enjoying some time away. We pray that they be safe and come back to us safely and be with us, Lord, as we uh, strive to live uh, that life of love that you have given to us so freely that we would not be shy or selfish about giving that love away. Watch over us until we're together again. And we pray those things in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.